I want to briefly touch on lockdowns because they were one of the most controversial policies uh, of the entire pandemic. And that's not to speak of the pandemic in the past tense, because, of course, it's still ongoing. But they were uh, applied primarily to the early phase of the pandemic when it was necessary to blunt the impact, protect our health systems and minimize the strain so that we could all we could all cope and, and get through it. Now, in Australia, we had what were probably the most strict lockdowns in the Western world. There was a uh, an international travel ban that lasted for more than 12 months. Oh, probably, no, maybe, maybe uh, 10, maybe uh, 10, 10 to 12 months, a bit over 12 months, I think. And that was severe. It was you know, pretty considered very radical. And yet the majority of Australians supported lockdowns and and in retrospect still still do. And people said to me, especially people on the internet uh, from overseas, how can you put up with this? Why are people not rioting? You know, it's all very well for you pro-vaxxers to be talking about lockdowns. You know, look at all the people they're affecting. And my answer was they're affecting me as well. This because I'm I'm pro-vax doesn't mean I'm immune to the effects of lockdowns. Where do you think I'm living on on some private island? You know, lockdowns affect me in exactly the same way. My family was just as affected by lockdowns as everyone else's family. Same restrictions applied to me. Mask mandates, you know, attendance mandates, venue venue numbers, all of those applied to me just as well. To we we even had travel restrictions. We were not allowed to travel a certain distance beyond our immediate household or, or neighborhood. And we had to, we could be fined if we had, uh, you know, if we were caught making non-essential trips too far in, you know, any particular direction. All of that was on me as much as it was on everyone else. So it's utterly laughable to suggest that just because I'm in, I'm only in favour of these things because they didn't affect me. Not only that, but the international travel ban affected me as well. Um, I'm a, a, a pastor at my a local church, and I was invited to be a keynote speaker at a Christian conference in Tennessee. And I was not able to attend that. I had to cancel. I have to say, I'm sorry, but the travel ban is going to be continuing on until at least um, June the next year. I, I can't do this. And, and I had to I had to pull out. Uh, also, my uncle in the UK died. I was not able to travel to, to the UK. I couldn't attend the funeral. And those were quite personal impacts, I, I don't mind saying. So it, it's not like... I was somehow too immune to the effects of these of these lockdowns, and I could see the benefits despite the disadvantages to myself, despite the disadvantages to my family, to my children, and even to some of the disadvantages to the local economy. I could still appreciate the benefits and the necessity that this short term pain w- would would generate, and 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 I could understand why they were needed, but at the same time, of course. Not only uh, around the world, but also, of course, in in Australia, lockdowns were resisted on economic and political grounds. And many politicians and pundits were saying things like, well, we've got a choice. We can destroy the economy for very little gain or we can preserve vital freedoms that would assist our recovery. Now, personally, I always found that a false dichotomy. I I thought that was massively overstating the case, particularly since Australia, which had Again, as I say, among the harshest lockdowns in the Western world, our economy bounced back very strongly. Within 18 months, we were back to pre-pandemic, you know, economic uh, levels, and we've still we've still recovered. We haven't we haven't fallen into into recession as a lot of people predicted that we would. Uh, in fact, Australia hasn't had a recession for more than 22 years now. And it was expected that the pandemic and the lockdowns would do this, but but it didn't. We still bounced back. What is your view on the whole lockdown situation and and particularly in the way it was handled? What do you think about the argument that we were faced with a decision to either destroy the economy or protect all our vital freedoms? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm not a guru here. And I, I, I think that, that that's important. So, you know, in, in my book, I really kind of take two very strong positions. Number one, vaccinate everyone. And number two, be honest, you know, don't say that the pandemic is over when it's not. Don't tell people that it's just the flu when it's not. 
Um, so, and, and I think that's, that is important because I think that, that a lot of the doctors who I write about uh, had a very strong opinion on every pandemic policy, whether it related to them or not, and that everyone was wrong but them. Having said that, uh, I, I tend to agree with you. So first of all, I, I, I criticize uh, the doctors who I write about for being sheltered from the consequences of their words. They were never going to uh, see a sick COVID patient. And I want to recognize that I was sheltered from the worst of the lockdowns. Um, I socially distanced five days the entire pandemic. You know, I went to work every day. I was never lonely. I never missed a paycheck. I never worried about how I'm going to pay rent or how I'm going to feed my family. I was never even that lonely because I was surrounded by, you know, the same doctors I'm always surrounded with. And I came home to, to, to my family. Um, you know, my wife is kind of a, a homebody. Uh, so she was she was perfectly happy. Uh, and, you know, of course, my children had remote schooling, which that was the one thing that that, you know, kind of, you know, ruined their high school experience, which is a, a, a horrible thing. Uh, so I wasn't totally severe, but I do want to recognize that my privilege and my blessings that I was uh, spared uh, the worst. And any any looking back on this, we have to sort of say what was known in March 2020, right? So looking back, it's very easy to say beaches should not have been closed, parks should not have been closed. Uh, which they were. And, and that was a mistake. And that was a mistake, right? We should have told people to get outside more, not to stay at home. Yeah, go outside and play tennis and walk and, and you know, your risk of getting COVID outside. It's not zero, but it's probably about as close to zero as you're going to get. But at least here in New York City, well, I mean, to make one other point too, that, that, that even without lockdown, so Sweden famously didn't lock down, although at some points they had to limit gatherings to eight people, they closed their high schools, and even their elementary schools that were officially open were closed a lot of times. So I, I saw this one very long Twitter thread, uh, a lot of the articles were in Swedish, but I think I got the point, just of elementary schools and middle schools closing for months at a time. So even those schools were... so. No place that I that I know of totally uh, escaped lockdowns, and um, but people would have voluntarily restricted their behavior as well. That's another very important point. So when people act as if only you know it was only the lockdowns that made restaurants and theaters and bars and offices not crowded. I mean that that's not the case. It wasn't just overly cautious politicians. Very few people in March and April of 2020 would have gone to Broadway shows here in New York, would have gone to crowded office buildings or bars. So, you know, even without lockdowns, people would have voluntarily restricted their behavior. But I don't know what choice people had, politicians had. You know, as I alluded to earlier, here in New York City, Forklifts were used to move bodies into massive overflowing refrigerated trucks to store the bodies. In India, you know, bodies were washing up on the shores of the Ganges River. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. In Ecuador, there were bodies in the streets. You know, we all read about Northern Italy that the churches were just overflowing with corpses. So had nothing been done, you know, let, let's say, for example, we didn't know anything about germ theory and we, we treated COVID by, you know, burning witches and killing cats. Millions of Americans would have died. There's no question about it. There would have been bodies in the streets and, and, and hospitals would have completely broken down. Um, you know, so sometimes I see one criticism of the lockdowns is that other care was delayed that, you know, cancer, you know, but there was no one to work, you know, in, in cancer wards, there was no one to work doing cancer screening. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just ridiculous that people would have gone to cancer screenings, you know, while there were bodies in the streets, uh, you know, from, from, from COVID. And, and, you know, we did have scenes like that here, not at my hospital, fortunately, but in some of the, the outer hospitals uh, outside of Manhattan, uh, at, at Elmhurst in, in particular, I mean, you, you read the accounts and people used war analogies to describe this. So I quote from one nurse who uh, was a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, and this nurse said her wartime experience didn't compare to what she saw. 
and I, I think this was one sort of problem with the pandemic is that from the outside, you know, these hospitals actually, you know, didn't look so bad, you know, I mean, a lot of things don't look bad from the outside. Prison probably doesn't look so bad from the outside. And, and I think a lot of people didn't really see what was going on inside. So I, I don't see how there's any way that lockdowns would have been avoided. And if you looked at what happened in New York City, uh, when we locked down, I think I'm going to get my numbers off by a little bit, but I think about 100 people were dying every day of COVID, maybe not quite that many, to be honest with you. Within three weeks, we reached our peak where just under 1,000 people in New York City were dying every single day, Eight or 900 people were dying. Um, and then six weeks later, it went right back down uh, to, to about 50 to 60 people dying a day, which is still a lot. But but something happened to slow down the spread of the virus. And I think a lot of people thought at the beginning of the pandemic, too, that there was something special about New York City. And I don't think there was. I think New York City was first. I mean, we, we got hit very hard. You know, it spread very rapidly here because we all ride subways together. We all live in the same buildings together. But everything that New York City experienced would have been experienced in the rest of the country in, in very short order and the rest of the world in very short order. And what lockdowns did is they a couple of things is they allowed our hospitals not to be completely and totally overwhelmed, although some of them were. You know, we had gynecologists caring for men. We had pediatricians caring for seniors. We graduated medical students early. You know, memories of this fade very quickly. But they allowed millions, tens of millions of Americans to get vaccinated before they were infected. That's what the lockdowns, you know, really did, I think. And I've read estimates that had that not happened, uh, you know, three million American lives would have been lost. And we'll never know exactly how many that is. But that sounds plausible to me. And so, yeah, it's a good thing that there are 3 million people who are still alive, you know, because of because of our pandemic response. Yeah, I, I think um, the other thing people forget is that lockdowns were also, of course, applied differently in, in different countries. As, again, in Australia, even though our lockdowns were conceded, considered very draconian, one thing that we didn't do was we didn't close schools. There wasn't a big push to close schools. New South Wales and Victoria, those two state governments, did close a handful of schools occasionally on what they saw as an as-needed basis. But there was no blanket policy of closing down schools, either nationwide or, or statewide in, in, across the state governments. Um, schools in, in, in my state, South Australia, remained open. I kept taking my kids to school. They, of course, they did adopt social distancing measures and and this kind of thing children weren't even required to wear to wear masks at, at my kids school and until uh actually last last year was you know and and even that was only for like one or two terms so people make very sweep sweeping generalizations about what they think lockdowns are without looking at, at the broader picture and then narrowing down and saying well look you know the broader picture shows that lockdowns didn't present us with a a, a false dichotomy of you know destroy the economy or keep people alive and and preserve our vital freedoms uh that turned out to be to be false and secondly when you look more closely at lockdown policies some of them weren't weren't quite as bad as, as some people think. So although Australia was more aggressive on a macro level, on a micro level, when it came to sort of schools, for example, schools and, and childcare facilities, they remained open. And one of the main reasons for that was because the, the federal and state governments agreed that to close them would place undue stress on parents who were unable to make alternative arrangements um, and also, and particularly working parents who could not be the ho at home for their for their kids if if their kids were required to stay home. So it was considered uh, a sensible measure to have a like as a relief valve if you if you like. And it was compensated for by other lockdown measures. And that worked for us. Now I'm not saying that there's any single lockdown policy that would have worked absolutely for every single country because obviously each country needs to tailor their policy to meet their demographics, their economy and their their location in in the world. But I am saying that that lockdowns as uh, much as they've been demonized were nowhere near as as bad 
as people have made them out to me. And if if a, a country like Australia, which had some of the most brutal lockdowns, has emerged without a destroyed economy, then I, I think other countries that didn't have anywhere near the scale that we did shouldn't have made that argument in the first place. So it's just it just struck me as ludicrous from the outset. Yeah, I mean, the lockdowns were a very here in the United States, varying stringency, you know, varying lengths. Um, the, the, all of the doctors who I write about speak about them also as these utter catastrophes, uh, the worst uh, harm to the lot. To the, they, they say it's it's the worst harm to the working class uh, since Vietnam War and seg- racial segregation. I mean, just these you know utter sort of catastrophes. And again, I, I want to recognize I'm coming from a position of privilege in that I was never worried about my finances. And, uh, you know, yeah, I was worried about how I was going to feed my family. <laughs> you know, lockdowns would probably play a bigger, bigger role in myself uh, in, in my life. But, um, you know, average Americans today don't talk about the lockdowns as a catastrophe. Like, go to a bar, go, go to, you know, like, you know, my hospital and I talk with, you know, all of the the, the, the staff there. We're, we're not saying, oh, my God, these lockdowns that lasted, you know, three months, three years ago, uh, you know, destroyed our lives were the worst things that that ever happened to us. Um, you know, obviously, yeah, school closure is going to is, is going to have its effects and those are going to ripple through. Um, but I do think that here in the United States, the idea that schools could have remained totally open while the virus just circulated uh, wildly, uh, it, it, it's a pure fantasy. And a matter of fact, again, you don't have to sort of think about the counterfactual. Schools did close multiple times in multiple states, not just Repub- not just Democratic states, but in Texas and in Georgia and in Arkansas due to sick students, sick teachers. At one of my children's schools, they just sat in the auditorium all day during the Omicron surge, because even though school was open, but there weren't enough teachers to, to, to teach the students. So, you know, this, the, the, this fantasy that, that things could have been normal if just for, you know, cowardly politicians is yeah, I so I, I agree. It's um you know, and and looking back, the devastation of the you know the predicted economic devastation simply didn't materialize. So it's it's hard to make that argument now that the lockdowns were the worst thing that to happen to the economy since the Great Depression or whatever. I would do move on then to to any recommendations that you personally would make, and can you, can you think of any countries that handled it particularly well and maybe covered a few of these a few of these bases in your view yeah so again i'm I'm not a guru so i don't know exactly you know what uh you know you know what exactly should be done and you know every pandemic hopefully i'll never live through another one but you know different viruses are going to require different responses based on how contagious it is how uh, you know what age group it's 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 effect and 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 how, how deadly it is. Um, I, I think that, uh, and this was one of the things that the World Health Organization said, I forget there was one one of their, their main, not Tedros, but one of their most prominent spokesmen says, you know, you have to act fast. You know, by the, by the time, you know, you're, you're, you know, but by the time you're dealing with dead bodies, it's, it's, it's too late. And, and, you know, he, he, he turned out to be right about that. Um, so I think, waiting for perfect evidence before acting. You know, this is one of the things that a lot of the doctors I, I, I criticize sort of said, you know, that, that oh, we haven't done randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials of this or that, and we don't really know if they work. You know, you, you often have to act with incomplete information, and that's, that's just part of being a doctor. I'm very used to that uh, as a neurologist. So I think that that's one. Obviously, I'm a big, super duper duper fan of vaccines. I mean, uh, you, you know, I think that if every human being on the planet was vaccinated, we would still be in a we'd be in a much better place. Uh, and you know, there's been you know whole seminars going to be devoted to vaccine equity and the hoarding of vaccines by 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 rich countries. Um, you know, and I think that you know moving forward, we're going to have to have vaccine plants. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's kind of scattered throughout the world so that people aren't dependent on us to, 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 to you know, some, you know, country A to send uh, vaccines to, to country B. And I suppose that the, the third thing is, is, is 
governments need to be tried to be totally honest because once trust breaks down, it's interesting. I just got done sort of saying that a lot of uh, large segments of the American public don't mind, you know, or the public in general don't mind being lied to. That's an interesting thing I've sort of realized over the course of the pandemic. Um, but once someone is is perceived to be kind of not on your team, you know, if you catch them in one lie, you know, or, or, or you know, one misstatement, uh, you know, they'll, they'll use that to discredit everything. And the best example of that here was uh, Anthony Fauci telling people at the beginning of the pandemic that they didn't need to wear masks. And the reason he did that was because uh, he wanted to, sp- you know, keep masks for, for healthcare workers, I, I, I think. And, and who knows, maybe he legitimately thought at the time that, you know, yes, masks, you know, we d- don't do much against the, the, this virus and it's not going to, and, and at the time, in theory, everyone was locked down. So, you know, masks maybe weren't that important at the start of the pandemic if people didn't really leave their house too much. Um and the, so I think it's important for, for people to try to be honest. And it, when you make an error, admit it, you know, so I've written a uh, hundred articles for the website, science-based medicine, and I've had to, uh, you know, make a few, I've goofed in a couple of those. And as soon as those errors were pointed out to me, I immediately thanked the person who, who notified me of the errors. And those articles now have corrections and with a notice that, you know, there, there was a mistake in the article. Um, and then the fourth thing, which is, you know, very hard, if, if not impossible, is to try to make, not make things political. So, you know, you spoke about both political parties in Australia being pro-vaccine. Unfortunately, uh, that's not happened in the United States. Just the opposite has happened. And it's going to get a lot worse before it's going to get a lot better. And I think we're going to see the return of measles, the return of all those other, you know, whooping cough. And, you know, even we had a case of polio, although that was from someone who should have been vaccinated 15 years ago. So you can't really blame the pandemic for that. But I, I think that 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 skepticism about COVID vaccines is going to bleed into all vaccines. And I think potentially, um, you know, some doctors oversold the vaccines at, at the beginning, you know, saying they complete. And, and, and by the way, these are doctors who, who you know, now say it was it was misinformation to, to say that vaccines stopped transmission. These were the guys in 21 saying COVID's going away because we're all getting vaccinated. So I think those are the main things. And it, it, it's it's very hard. And I suppose, you know, who handled it the best? Well, you guys seem to have done pretty well until relatively recently. You know, I think New Zealand is kind of the poster child. Um, they squatched, you know, and both of you guys have the advantage of being islands, which is kind of nice. But so did the UK. And they didn't take advantage of that. Um, you know, New Zealand had a fraction of the deaths that that we had. I think something like 800,000 Americans would still be alive if we had their level of, of death. And much of their life was open. Uh, you know, while we were in lockdown, their kids were going to school. They were eating out in restaurants because they had squashed COVID cases, which you could do with the original variants. Uh, it's probably it's you know impossible with Omicron. We're ne- you know in animals, it's in you know we're never going to get rid of this virus. So you know lockdowns are definitely a thing of the past. They're never coming back. But I do think the United States and maybe even the whole world, we are worse. Uh, we are worse prepared for the next pandemic than than we were three years ago, just because of the the divisiveness and the the, the lack of trust in institutions, uh, and it's 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 a shame. It's a tragedy. Two other countries that performed exceptionally well were Taiwan and Singapore. Now, Singapore is renowned for its very high rate of public compliance, and it's. Uh, sometimes literally brutally strict laws. Also in Southeast Asia and, and also across to Japan, there is it is a, a an accepted practice, a very a standard practice during the winter months, autumn and winter months, to wear masks anyway to, to stop the spread of respiratory diseases. So things like masking up was considered just, yeah, okay, we just do it a little more often than we wouldn't more normally would. So there was far less cultural resistance to some of the pandemic measures that were more strongly resisted in the West. And certainly Singapore and Taiwan, uh, my twin brother lives in Taiwan, and I know not just from the news, but from his personal experience, Taiwan absolutely nailed their pandemic response. It was their Mm -hmm. numbers are just exceptional. And this is a small country 
with a relatively high population, very high population density, and like the US, highly reliant, well, so, no, I should say less the US, more inner city New York, highly reliant on high density public transport, like um, subways, because having been to the States, uh, I know that no public transport is typically a thing that happens to other countries. Correct. <laughs> the car is the king over there. Um, yeah. But but yeah, like like the like New York, uh, especially with their subway system, Taiwan very heavily relies on a high density public transport system. So it was vital to make sure that COVID pandemic protocols were maintained as as strictly as possible. Uh, those two countries performed exceptionally well. And South also, Korea. South yeah. Korea, again. And again, I think countries with high rates of social compliance, a strong cultural ethos towards supporting the community rather than saying we must preserve the individual right to do as he pleases. Um, I think this also played a great part. And also a a cultural tradition again of adopting seasonal measures, which are good for preventing seasonal diseases, which transfer related very well to protecting people from from a, a respiratory pandemic. Um, I did notice in passing when I went back and looked at the numbers, many African nations, in fact, many many African nations, even the sub-Saharan ones, performed extremely well too. For for various reasons that I I eventually went into and, and explained in inf an infographic, in fact, some African nations ended up re returning or refusing vaccines because they no longer required them, and that was a a, a very pleasant surprise for um for a lot of epidemiologists who'd expected worse performance. Yes, there was some some tragically poor performance in quite a few African nations, but s some of them performed exceptionally well for for a variety of, of factors. But yeah, I I did feel that was interesting. In Australia, overall, we the public doesn't have the same loathing and distrust for the government that seems to be hardwired into the American psyche. Our general view is that the government is a, a necessary evil. It, it's there and it's annoying, uh, but it would be no, more annoying if it wasn't there because we need it for certain things. So we, we put up with it. And organisation was done differently. The The prime minister convened what he called a, um, a national cabinet so that the premiers, who are um, the, the leaders of, of each state government, um, were summoned to meet with a prime minister at the nation's capital on a regular basis and discuss pandemic measures and what would be done in in each individual state and what would be agreed on for part of the nationwide response and that that more cooperative approach actually served us very well cuz we didn't we didn't end up with big battles between the state and federal governments over what should be done and how and where resources should be allocated and and who was going to get hold of them first so the national cabinet system worked out very well it was a much more collaborative uh, approach you know there were still disagreements and, and arguments but i think overall that that actually helped a lot yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm an American and I, I, you know, love sort of our independent streak that we're unruly and that we're not just going to be sort of compliant and do what the government tells us to do. I got that in me. But I think some people adopted a contrarianism where it, it was essentially whatever the government tells me to do, I'm going to do the opposite. And I'm going to say that's what thinking for myself is. So when the government said stay home, they went and had coughing parties, you know, parties where they coughed on each other. I'm, you know, kind of only half exaggerating here. And had the government said, don't stay home, go out and live your life, they would say, I'm going to stay home. So I, I, I think that there is a, a lot of kind of very juvenile, um, whatever they tell me to do, I'm going to do the opposite. You can't control me. And, and you saw this with a lot of our conservative talk show hosts who died of COVID in droves, taking many of their listeners with them.
you know, I, you know, use the word, I think, to describe Singapore and like social compliance. And that really grates to my American ears, you know, because a compliant population is one that can be, you know, marched off to war and commit atrocities. And there's truth. There's some truth to that. You know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, having I think the United States would be would be kind of hopefully hard, hard to, 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 to marshal us to, to commit atrocities. But it can backfire with us when, when we need to sort of come together and, and pull together. Uh, in in the ways that you described, and nothing, you know, n- nothing challenges that more than a, c- a communicable disease. So you've mentioned contrarian voices, and and this is, I think, a a leading theme of your book that these contrarian voices developed a large following, particularly on social media, and many of these voices spoke with well. They projected a sense of authority, and and some of them had legitimate uh, authority on the basis of education and experience. And many of these voices did belong to qualified doctors and scientists who spoke very confidently about their views on the pandemic, what should and shouldn't be done. And they've consistently spoken out, as you've mentioned, against the scientific consensus on covid and they've subsequently assisted in the spread of misinformation about the pandemic. But the average person is going to say, well, hang on a second. Firstly, the pandemic science seemed to change a lot. So I'm very confused about who I should be listening to. Because first we were told one thing, and then we were told another thing, and then we were told about this variant, then we we're told about that variant. Why did the science seem to change so much if science is supposed to be reliable? And secondly, if what these doctors and scientists are saying is false, why would they do that and risk their careers by telling people what something that they know to be false? What's in it for them and, and what would have caused them to break ranks with the consensus? How would you respond to those two arguments? So, you know, science is a process. We're, we're constantly trying to learn and reevaluate uh, our, our, our beliefs and our opinions. And especially with this virus, uh, everything changes. It mutates, it changes in how it spreads. And so the virus changes and then the population changes. There's a ton of immunity that was not there three years ago. So it's not just the science change. It's not like we're just discovering new facts, Uh, but the virus itself is changing. So things that were true about the virus three years ago are no longer true, or even two years ago. For example, the original mRNA vaccine trials that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine showed the vaccine was 95% effective at preventing COVID. I mean, these amazing numbers. It's not like those studies were wrong. They They were accurate. It's just that the virus has changed so much that it's no longer the, the, the case. So people are just seeing science get done uh, in, in real time. And it's it's amazing the amount of science that has gotten done. I mean, to, 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 to go from a new virus to safe and effective vaccines in less than a year uh, is really sort of a compelling thing. And then, you know, who to trust? Uh, that's a very tough question. And that's partially sort of what motivated me to write this book is that these were doctors, some of whom I heard of, some of whom I, I hadn't, but um, who were famous and, and and trustworthy. So one of them who I speak about quite a bit is, I haven't mentioned him in this podcast, is Dr. John Ioannidis, a very famous, if not America's most famous uh, scientist, aside from Fauci himself, but just this world leader in, in epidemiology and, and sort of studying bad science himself. Um, and at the beginning of the pandemic, when he was saying it's, it's close to over, the virus is extremely widespread. This is what he was saying, you know, in April 2020, this virus is everywhere. For most people, it's a very common mild virus. I thought it was a good chance he was right, you know, um, even though I, what, it was at odds what I was witnessing every day at work when I saw and I did see young people die of COVID um, when he was saying the virus poses no risk to essentially to anyone under the age of 65. It's, it's as dangerous as driving back and forth to work each day. 
you know, I, I believe him because he, it was all these credentials, uh, the, the way that he spoke, you know, very opposite from Kelly Brogan, you know, with scientific jargon. So um, I, I think the public has been 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 very con confused. And so, um, you know, who to trust? So I think, you know, people, you know, an, an expert is a, an expert in a very small number of things. So, you know, what can I do? in this field better than anyone else uh, or it, very few people can do as well as me. And I think the one thing that I can do, which I have done in my book is recognize how old anti-vaccine ideas became mainstream. Um, so I can really see the through lines between Andrew Wakefield, Kelly Brogan, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and what these doctors are saying. And some of those worlds have blended by the way. Um, uh, traditional anti-vaxxers are sort of merging with uh, new school anti-vaxxers. Um, but beyond that, you know, I don't really comment a about a lot. So, you know, I don't comment a ton about masks. I haven't read all of the studies. I don't comment about ventilation uh, because I don't really know is, is cleaning the air uh, a feasible sort of thing with that, you know, can you really stall you know, air purifiers in every room in America. And would that really work? I, I don't know. So I don't comment on that. And I try to keep, um, you know, uh, I try not to talk about things that I don't know about. I don't never spoken anything about where this virus came from, because I'm not qualified to determine whether it came from a lab or a wet market. So, so I think people who you should trust are people who speak very confidently about a very small number of things, um, people who are willing to admit error. And that I, I think kind of goes into your motivation question. Um, you know, I'm not gonna cast aspersions on most of the doctors that I speak about, but I think the one trait that kind of unites them is they weren't able to admit error. So when they predicted that COVID was going to kill 20,000 people or 40,000 people and the body started piling up, instead of saying I was wrong, some of them started spreading conspiracies that people were dying with COVID, not of COVID, that death certificates couldn't be trusted, that it was frontline doctors who, were who killed patients through premature intubations, that these were people who were dying lockdown deaths. And these myths are extremely, extremely common today. Uh, go to any sort of Twitter argument and, you know, you'll see people saying, oh, you know, no, New York City wasn't so bad. These people died because of the lockdowns and because of, you know, you guys intubated the patients too quickly. None of this is true, by the way. So so I think a lot of the the, the motivation for these doctors is they kind of have trouble admitting air. Um, I think a handful of them have kind of more shady uh, motivations for, for uh, you know, not being honest with people. Uh, a lot of them are very well funded. Um, there's all these sort of right wing libertarian think tanks and groups that seem to be kind of interconnected throughout the world. Uh, you know, the Great Barrington Declaration is now the Brownstone Institute, which is now the Norfolk group. And then in the UK, you have these groups called Panda and Us for Them. And I'm sort of blanking on some of these other names of these groups, which are, you know, financed by, you know, cryptocurrency bros, billions of dollars. And then I think kind of what I was saying about Kelly Brogan before, just this sort of joy of thinking that you know so much more than everyone. You know, these guys have a lot of people in their Twitter feeds. Oh, you're such a wonderful, brave, courageous, honest doctor willing to, to tell the truth and fight for evidence. And, um, you know, anyone who disagrees with them get blocked, you know, so I got blocked by Dr. Marty McCary for saying, hey, we didn't reach herd immunity in April uh, 2021, um, but go to his Twitter feed and see who he hasn't blocked. And it's, you know, crazy sort of Pfizer's trying to kill us all with their experimental Bill Gates mRNA vaccine. And so you see how people sort of surround themselves um, in, in these bubbles and how they sort of get rewarded for sort of saying more and more kind of outrageous thing. So I think that's one important lesson. You know, you asked, uh, you know, what, why, you know, what advice I think you had, you know, for someone going into medicine. And I think one, one important thing is um, not to develop a brand, not to develop a super duper public reputation. I mean, there are some doctors who have uh, developed public reputations and have done a very good job. But the moment that you feel beholden to your audience, that you feel I got to 
I got to please them. I got to kind of continually escalate. So I witnessed this with Kelly Brogan when I first encountered her 10 years ago. Uh, you know, she was saying vaccines cause autism. And that was like, oh, my God, I can't believe she just said that. And then before the pandemic, in order to get attention, she had to say, you know, vaccines are causing sudden infant death syndrome and it's a depopulation agenda, you know, so saying vaccines cause autism was just going to like, that's boring old routine stuff. So she kept that, she kept having to escalate. And I saw that with a lot of the doctors who I wrote about too, um, who when vaccines for kids were coming out said, listen, I think the virus is going away. We might not need to vaccinate them. And a year later, we're saying this is the worst catastrophe ever to befall American children. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but just sort of saying, you know, oh, this vaccine myocarditis is just this super duper catastrophe. And you could, you could sort of see how they had become not really leaders anymore, but they were just kind of following what their Twitter followers wanted and what they what they wanted, what they thought that they wanted to hear. I'm sure this was all unconscious. I'm sure that they weren't saying, what can I say now to get more attention and be relevant? But, you know, most of what I say, I think is pretty boring. You know, I'm not trying to get people to sort of say, oh, what a brave truth teller and fighter for, you know, you are taking on, you know, big Pfizer and Bill Gates and Fauci. So, so I think, uh, you know, that that's another piece of advice I would give to doctors is, uh, you know, young doctors is, is, you know, don't, don't become a brand. And, you know, you know, if, if, if my Twitter got turned off tomorrow, uh, and you know, my blog got turned off, you know, I'd, I'd miss it. I like it, you know, but it wouldn't be like this sort of devastating loss of income for me. That's for sure. I, I would lose exactly zero dollars. Um, and you know, and I'd be fine. Thanks for that response, which which was not only detailed, but well nuanced. I think there's two main points I can take from what you've said. Firstly, that when we're looking for someone to trust in a specialized field of, of science or medicine, or theoretically any, any other field or industry, the people we should be paying particular attention to are one, those who could admit their mistakes, and two, those who are who recognize the limits of their knowledge and expertise and either are reluctant or simply refuse to speak outside them. And you've been very explicit multiple times through this interview and in pointing out issues and topics on which you are reluctant to speak because they are outside your field of expertise and you prefer not to opine on them, which is, of course, the mature and professional thing to do. What I have noticed, and it's a very common theme I've noticed amongst um, quacks and, and even those sort of on the on the fringe, is that people like Brogan or or um, or people like Paul Thomas or or, or, mm -hmm. or other other people like that, they are very quick to speak broadly on fields and, and issues that they have no specialized expertise in whatsoever. They will attempt to, to provide broad solutions that will cover, uh, allegedly cover every problem. Um, and they will, whether it's a, a cream or an ointment or a product or whatever, or, or a way of going about things, they like to provide broad answers to and, and simple answers to complex questions, and they speak with authority on issues in, and within fields that they are not qualified for. And that is something that, in my experience, a reliable professional will never do, especially if they are, are a, a, a dedicated specialist. They will, they will say, that is not my field. I can give you an opinion, but it is not a, a professional opinion on the same level as someone who is a specialist in that in that field and that is something that i ha have noted again and again particularly throughout the pandemic but also more broadly in the field of pro-vax versus anti-vax debate and the second thing i i've noted from your response is that when people say oh well, why would these brave doctors risk their careers by speaking out like this if if what they're saying is wrong and then and they know that well the, that's the, that's the beauty of it. They haven't risked anything. Firstly, as you say, most of them were not practicing in frontline medicine, so they were not putting anything on the line. Secondly, those who even were already associated with mainstream medicine and chose to leave it, they didn't do so 
uh, to any risk to themselves. All they did was they found a new grift. They found a new source of income. They found a new audience that was happy to throw money at them hand over fist. They found a think tank that would support them and fund them. And they're actually, many of them, doing much better than they would have done in in their regular profession anyway. So there was no risk. They found a new grift and they found it highly profitable. And so they didn't have to risk anything at all. And and that, I think, is a key takeaway from uh, this this phenomenon of professionals who drift to the fringe and then subsequently become cranks and and quacks they're not they pretend that they're risking everything they never are they're not that stupid they know exactly what they're doing and how to do it and they have planned ahead and and i think that is something to recognize because it completely undercuts this claim that these are courageous truth tellers flying in the face of of terrible opposition that could ruin their careers not in the slightest these people have nothing to lose because they've already made their new their new nests and feathered them very handsomely yeah i mean i think that they've in one way uh, they they've lost a certain part of their careers and that very few doctors are going to respect them from now on i think they would have a very hard time moving from the universities where they are i i i don't think too many people would be willing to, to hire them but they've become kind of celebrities you know they're 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 testifying in front of congress and in in front of courtrooms and meeting with governors and presidents and uh, you know, on hundreds of podcasts, you know, Google their names and YouTube, it'll be you know, sort of nonstop videos. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, even though they say that they've been silenced and censored and slandered and slurred, uh, you know, they're very quick to view themselves as victims. Um, you know, the true doctors who have been silenced this pandemic are the ones who are dead. We don't hear from them. The ones who 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 died uh, treating COVID patients. So to close out this interview, can you tell me the three most important things that you hope readers will learn from your book? Um. So I hope, uh, like I said, that they will learn. Um, one sort of slice of what went wrong this pandemic. Why was the country that was number one? In, supposedly in pandemic preparedness, uh, why did we fail so miserably? What 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 happened? So so again, I, that not you know hundreds of books can and will be written on, on that topic. So I hope to give uh, sort of one reply to that. And the second is how the anti-vaccine movement is becoming mainstream, especially with regards to to, to COVID. And then the third is kind of what to do about all this. What you know, what 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 should we do? Um, I don't come down on uh, anyone getting fired. I don't come down on anyone, you know, on governments censoring anyone because, you know, uh, although I am sort of broadly supportive of of, of governments, uh, you know, censoring medical misinformation, I'm also keenly aware that I'm only in favor of that when it's my guy in charge. So if Ron DeSantis becomes our next president, God forbid, I do not want him creating, he's the governor of Florida, you know, who's very anti-vaccine. I do not want him uh, creating a medical misinformation board because I will be silenced then. So the third, so what should we do? And I think people should really speak up. Um, before the pandemic, my interest in the anti-vaccine movement was viewed as kind of a quirky thing, right? It was kind of like, oh, you know, there's Jonathan. He's really good at juggling. <laughs> and, and you know, and it, I, I don't want to, to, to overstate sort of how, how in, important it was, because as I just got done saying, measles hadn't killed a child in the United States since the 1990s. But my disagreement with the anti-vaccine movement in some ways, wasn't really about the vaccines, as we've been discussing. It's how it's about the epistemology. How do you approach the sort of worldview of evidence? And, you know, most doctors kind of viewed alternative medicine and quackery and, and, and bad critical thinking as, as, as these sort of kind of oddball things. And I think there's this very, very belated recognition that hundreds of thousands of Americans died and suffered because of medical misinformation 
and it's only going to get worse. So I hope that my book is a call to action uh, to, to everyone in the medical field that when you see someone spreading misinformation, you should call it out. You should label it as misinformation. A lot of misinformation was, you know, I think a lot of doctors are very wary of sort of censoring the next Galileo or, or this sort of thing. So, you know, we need to leave faith, you know, room for people to have good faith disagreements. And so, um, you know, I, I, and I think we have to be very slow to label something misinformation. But when you see it, uh, you need to call it out for, for what it is. When someone says the flu killed more children than COVID, that's false. In the United States, COVID killed about 2,000 children and the flu about 150. 2,000 is a lot more than 150. But a lot of uh, you know doctors will say, oh, that's just thinking differently. That's just heterodox. That's just people's sort of different uh, you know opinions. And we need to have you know, we need to, to, to leave wide room for sort of scientific debate and for people to think differently and outside the box. And that's, of course, as stated that way, that's unobjectionable. I think that the final thought that I'll leave you with, and really one of the things that I've taken home is the wisdom of Hans Christian Andersen's The Emperor's New Clothes, is when you see an emperor who's naked, even if that emperor is someone who you respected, who has many more credentials than you do and is famous and is, is on TV. If you see them say something that is medical misinformation, you need to politely, don't call them a jerk moron or idiot, but, but, speak, but speak out about it because otherwise we lose. And we, we, you know, a lot was lost this pandemic because people were told COVID was over uh, when it wasn't, and they were told that only grandma has risk when she didn't, when it wasn't just grandma who had risk, excuse me, and they were told that the vaccine was more dangerous than the virus, when the virus was much more dangerous than the vaccine. Dr. Howard, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure, and I've learned a lot just by speaking with you. If people want to follow your work, where can they find you online? So the best place is uh, my blog, Science. It's not my blog, but I write for them one or two times a week, Science-Based Medicine. I am on Twitter kind of anonymously. Um, let's see, what is my handle? It's 19Joho. So 19Joho. Um, you know, I, I can sometimes be kind of a little bit nasty on there. So hopefully people will hear from this this podcast. I'm pretty nice, uh, nice, mellow kind of guy. This is this is this is how I am. It's hard to come across in writing uh, sometimes. Um, and thank you for having me. I, I, I really appreciate our conversation and learned a lot about Australia. No problem. Thank you very much again.